Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Hello. Welcome back to Seriously. We're just completely excited for Christmas now. It's so, so nearly here. I know, it's so close you can taste it in every sandwich and coffee that you have. Every sort of evening in pub, everything is in some way mould. It's brilliant. Yeah, my life is mould. <laughs> mould life. <laughs> so we've been looking through some of your responses from last week's episode and we had, uh, yeah, quite a divided response to our Parks and Rec segment, although it actually wasn't that divided. Well, it was divided <laughs> between us and everyone who got in touch. So if you heard last week's episode, you will know that we had to go up watching the TV show Parks and Recreation. And about 10 years later than about the, ten years the later living population. Than everyone else. And we thought it was okay, I think. I mean, I think you liked it a bit more than I did. I think I was, I was giving it a, a grace period, a longer grace period. Yeah, um, whereas I feel like a series, nearly two whole series is an ample grace period. And mm. if I didn't like it, well, not that I didn't like it, I just wasn't in love with it by then, then, you know, sorry, next thing. But it seems like we might be in a minority of two feeling like this. Yeah. And all of the emails <laughs> and tweets we've had from people are to say, no, you have to stick with it. And then there's always, everyone has their own idea about when it gets good. So series three seems quite a popular, popular okay. point, but some people were even saying series four. Right. Um, which, which is a long time to stick with something, isn't it? That's like another 20 episodes. But maybe we should have just gone it. Maybe we should have just gone in from midway through. I'm yeah, sure we maybe. wouldn't have lost that much backstory. Maybe. I don't know. But also, there was some. We had one email that made the, the nice point that it was. For her, it was less about the kind of single episode where suddenly it all turned and became great as like the kind of cumulative process of seeing the characters kind of grow together and become a family. So, in that sense, maybe you do need to watch the bad stuff yeah for it to become yeah. good i don't know but yeah anyway it, it's always nice to hear your thoughts even if we can't completely agree with you <laughs> so this week we've got a nice mixed bag for you we're going to talk about rainbow Rowell's book carry on also alongside her book fangirl with elizabeth minkle a dear friend of ours who speaks on the fansplaining podcast usually um so she's joining us we've also joined them for a week so check out their next episode if you want to hear us on that if you check out our twitter we'll we'll link to when we're on the fansplaining podcast and also at elizabeth and stuff so you can find out more about her if you want to yeah it's a podcast all about fandom so if you like the episodes of seriously where we've touched on fandom it's probably for you 
We're also going to do our swappy reviewy thing. I watched Adventure Time. But first, we're going to talk about Capital, which is a BBC adaptation of John Lanchester's book, Capital. Book of the same name. <laughs> yeah, which is a novel that came out a couple of years ago, I feel like. Um, 2012, I 2012. think it was. And it did, it did something that books, I feel like, very rarely manage, which is it was both a thriller, like you saw people reading it on trains everywhere, wanting to know what happened. Mm -hmm. But also it got a lot of critical attention as a bit of serious literary fiction. I'm not quite sure how he managed that because to me it always felt more like the former than the latter but I think maybe it was one of those things where he'd written what is essentially a kind of thriller with enough like topical social commentary mm -hmm. that people who commissioned pieces for broadsheet newspapers liked it. I don't He's know. He's also a serious man. He is a serious helps. man. But he is a he is a serious man who I actually have quite a lot of time for. He is the only man who I'm willing to read in the London Review of Books. I have this strict system, because I'm a subscriber to the London Review of Books, but I have a strict system where I only read the articles written by women and John Lanchester, which is both a statement about they need to get more women writing for them, because it's pathetic mm -hmm. that they don't have more. But also, there's a lot of articles in there and they're quite long so it's quite a useful like limiting strategy i do really like his pieces and i like you know he he writes about everything from economics game of thrones yeah so he's not a quote serious man who only tackles so-called serious subjects mm -hmm. i think is why why he um he gets a bit more of a pass. The BBC have adapted the novel into a three-part drama with some of our detectorist heroes are, are <laughs> yeah. in it. So Toby Jones plays the, the main sort of banker character and what's it, Andy's wife from yeah, Detectorist. Yeah, Mackenzie Crook's wife. Yeah, she, she plays his wife. It's called Capital and it means capital both in the sense that it's set in the UK's capital, London, but also in the sort of slightly more abstract economic sense of like an asset. Because... It's a it's an ensemble thing about this street in London and all the people who live on it. But the not the joke, but like the kind of underlying humour always is that they're sitting still while their houses become worth more and mm -hmm. more and more money. Yeah. The road that they live on is called Peeps Road. Fun yeah. fact about me, I live off the a Peeps Road in, uh, Lon in South London. As actual, in Samuel Peeps, yeah. Yes, yeah. as in the actual Peeps Road in South London, which uh. is not, it's, it's in a much uh, less glamorous area of, <laughs> of South London than is portrayed on TV. Because I feel like their area, just brief sidebar, I feel like their area of South London is meant to be the same fictional fancy Wandsworth as in Love Actually. Perhaps. They live just off Clapham Common in the... Ah, okay, is that where it is? Yeah, so I think that... Because there's lots of shots of Clapham Common. Mm. So that makes sense to me. That, that, that sense. would be that kind of price range. Whereas, yes, the new Cross Peeps Road is, is not quite <laughs> the same. But someone did write a piece already for the Telegraph being like, I live on the actual Peeps Road. Here are the differences between my... You know, so <laughs> Caroline's rolling her eyes. Listening. Yeah, I was mostly thinking you got pipped to the post there. That should have oh, been right. your piece. <laughs> no, no. Um, and this street is supposed to be kind of representative of London as it is slash yeah. was in 2012, you know. So you've got Toby Jones's character is this incredibly well-off banker and he's got his kind of stay-at-home mum, wife and their mm -hmm. privately educated children. Called Conrad and Joshua. Yeah, and their, <laughs> their nanny, um, etc. You've also got, so Gemma Jones in what I think is the kind of standout performance of yes, the adaptation, definitely. actually. She plays this now elderly woman like she's always lived there so she moved in when she was 21 and she's now 84 so yeah. it's been a long time it was the house that her husband like brought her back to after they got married where like she had her daughter where everything in her life has happened but so she's kind of lived through all of the different sort of waves of immigration and all all different things on the corner shop you 
you've got the Pakistani family. Yeah, the Kamals. The Kamals, who are more recent immigrants, but are very, well, at least the proprietor of the shop is very, he's very kind of embedded in the community Mm -hmm. and very sort of... You get the feeling they've been there a long time because Gemma Jones' character knows them quite well and it seems like she's not actually popping out of the house that much anymore. So, So that's the premise of the thing, is that they're kind of a community, but they're also not, they don't do stuff together. They are neighbours in the London sense. Mm-hmm. They know each other by sight and they, at times of crisis, will speak to each other. Yeah. But beyond that, they are not friends. No. But the point is that they all share in the capital, in mm-hmm. the, the rising house prices of made houses that, you know, they're, they're like three bed semis, you know, they're not fancy, but they're, because of their location and because of London's insane property bubble, they're worth like... And they're like nice Victorian They're nice ones Victorian well, ones, yeah. but they're worth like... Well, because so every month in the adaptation... Yeah, structurally, they, they do it by month, and with, with each changing month, you see the house price either rise or drop. Yeah, the little sort of rolling cashier yeah. symbol, yeah. And so, the, what, they're like 2.8 million or something? Yeah. yeah, it hovers around that, doesn't it? So there's this constant tension of, like... So, like, the Gemma Jones character, her daughter really wants her to sell up, and ostensibly, like, you could sell up and move closer to us, whereas you can tell there's a bit of, like, you could sell up and then you'd have all that money. Yeah, also, you could sell up now. Yeah. Well, well, think you know everything's on the up. It sort of reminded me that this is probably not a completely accurate comparison of the lady in the van, where you have yeah. all the people on the street. I mean, the the lady in the van, that street in Camden is more uniform, and it's sort of like mostly middle class. You know, they, there's a line in it, isn't there, about like, oh yes, we're all sort of like journalists, artists, yeah. bankers. Like that's who we are here. Whereas I think what's happened with this street is by 2012, you've got people who've lived there forever and thus now live in property they could never afford. Mm-hmm. You and you've also got people who've just bought it as a desirable, mm-hmm. yeah, acquisition kind of thing. So it's it's much more mixed. The high end couple are Toby Jones and his wife. They're the sort of rich two. And there's been a lot of comparisons of this to Dickens, like, quite overtly. Mm. It also reminded me of The Casual Vacancy. Yes, actually. Which is sort of, I guess, meant to be like a Victorian novel, so that's probably why. Do you Have you read Our Mutual Friend? Do you, do you remember the veneerings at the beginning of oh, Our yes. Mutual Friend? Yeah, yeah. Who, like, I actually, I, yeah, I wrote it down. It's like, the veneerings were brand new people with a brand new house, and it made me think so much of these two characters in this, because they, like, have everything brand new. So it says... Uh, in, in Our Mutual Friend, they say, all their furniture was new, all their friends were new, all their servants were new, their plate was new, their carriage was new, their harness was new, their horses were new, their pictures were new, they themselves were new. It also says all things were in a state of high varnish and polish at the veneerings. And yeah, that couple to me are Mr. and Mrs. Veneering in yeah. their own sort of way, because they've got this sort of rotating refurbishment of the house going on. So there's a Polish builder always in the house, always redecorating, refurbishing. So each room is always new and they've got a new nanny every five minutes. And there's even a bit where he takes a sip of his wine and he says, like, does this taste young to you? Like, yeah. even the wine, like, you know, everything's too new. And I mean, the Dickens characters, even their names are... Veneering. A, a veneer is a, a sort of a shallow layer of something fancy laid over something less nice. Yeah, it's also, um, it's, it's very much you can't polish a turd, is yeah. the joke, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, you're right, they, they are absolutely, because it is kind of hilarious how obsessed with renovation they are, mm-hmm. and sort of like new shiny sofas arriving in plastic wrappings, and nothing can be old or lived in. Yeah. Everything has to be new and perfect exactly so they're they're very much the newcomers to the yeah. street as well in that sense and i think sort of a, a moral dimension to that that we we definitely look down on them as characters don't they because we see them as materialistic and well there's that awful bit in the first episode where 
Toby Jones's character meets Mashinko mm-hmm. on the bench on the common, and they're sort of talking about uh, Mashinko. Uh, he's a Zimbabwean immigrant. They're talking about London and oh, how long have you been here and stuff. Very nice, amiable conversation. And then Mashinko says something like, "I think London would be a very nice place to live if you were well off." Mm. As and he kind of indicates Toby Jones. He says like, "As you are," mm. and Toby Jones is like, "Oh well, not by London standards." Yeah, he does a lot of that, isn't there? There's also he's a he's a banker and he's expecting a one million or two million pound bonus. Yeah, and he kind of says, "You know what? Well, one million can't really buy you anything these days." And then when his bonus actually turns out to be. Uh, 30 grand he's like 30 grand what can anyone get with 30 grand who would who wants 30 grand and you're like oh my god literally i will take the 30 grand please (laughs) like yeah it's it's mad so they're infuriating as a couple because they're so oblivious to everything they have the the bit where they're talking about how they're going to spend the million pound bonus and he's listing all of the things like oh you know the mortgage on this place the mortgage Mm. on the holiday home like the the slate tiles of the bathroom holiday with this in this place holiday in that place it's a massive like your car my car the family car like tax private school education and he's listing all of these things and then she just says like well you wouldn't say any of those things aren't essential would you which of those is not absolutely essential and then you know obviously when they fall on harder times they have to adjust but the thrust of the plot is that everyone who lives in these houses starts getting postcards coming through the door saying we want what you have you can keep them you wouldn't find a doctor down here before or a banker there's no reason this bonus might not be closer to two million than one. I think you need me to come and speak to the police about those abusive postcards you told me about. I don't think anyone will want what I have. I know I don't. And everyone instantly is like, oh, our houses. You know, stuff gets weirder and weirder. They get DVDs with videos of themselves walking in and out of their houses, photos of them and their children outside their houses. There's at one point dead birds and dead mm. animals start coming through the letterboxes and someone writes, we want what you have in enormous red paint down the street. So someone's sort of saying, you know, you've got something that we want, but that it's always assumed to be property, whether or not it is in the end mm. property. It feels like a kind of Occupy style anonymous yeah. punching up type narrative i think that's what you're supposed yeah, to yeah it's a bit it seems a bit social justice yeah. doesn't it it's very vague there's yeah. no clear indication of what the people in the houses could actually do or or give or anything yeah, yeah it's just an intimidation isn't it that's what it comes across as yeah so that's where the thriller element comes in and each family or you know couple or whoever on the street are trying to figure out what's going on and there's a police investigation and there's town meetings and this kind of stuff as they try to sort of solve the crime and uh, other things start to unravel on the street as the police start to investigate this stuff yeah. so for example there's a traffic warden called Quentina who's a Zimbabwean immigrant or refugee actually working as a traffic warden is in violation of her refugee status and she gets arrested and that's actually one of the real you know sad things about oh, this I found that so awful yeah, and especially because... given that we know that in real life the place where they shut her up is essentially Yarl's Wood. Yeah, which, which is, is a, a terrible detention centre. awful detention centre for women who have done nothing wrong. And yeah. she, um, the, the, also the moment in which she's taken away is Toby Jones, uh, in a moment of fury about stuff coming through the letterbox, says, you know, why, what about her? Why don't you investigate her? Because she's been giving him tickets on his car and it drives him a bit insane. And he, it's the carelessness with which he says that and which he has absolutely no regard for her life or mm. like her situation 
and then it ends up with her eventually getting arrested and detained. And there's also a plot involving radicalization where, mm. yeah, an innocent young man uh, who's related to the family that owned the, sh- the corner shop, the Pakistani family, is also arrested and, yeah, you know, detained under the 14-day laws we have here about how you can keep someone without charge for 14 days if they're suspected of terrorism. So all these other things start to basically kind of collapse around the street in the process, and it's a sort of a look at the social consequences of that, right? Yeah, exactly. And actually, the bit where I think it's in the first episode, the guy who runs the corner shop kind of says, "Oh, um, keep, we don't want him like going off to Syria or something." Which yeah. I think, as a line, if John Lanster wrote that line in 2012, that is quite different to now. Obviously, that mm. feels very topical. I mean, what did you think of it overall? You've read the book. How did it compare? So I read the book a lot like I read a detective story or a thriller, like in a massive rush, just wanting to find out mm-hmm. what happens. I saw afterwards from the reaction to it that people were appreciating it as a kind of Dickens-style London social commentary novel. That's not really how I read it. But it is the sense I got from the adaptation. So Mm. in that sense, I think it was good to have them both. Like, I got something different from each. I also really liked the London of the adaptation felt quite real and realistic. And they obviously were at pains to set it in a real city, even though it's just really, you only ever see people really in one street. Yeah, I agree with you actually on that massively because the Gemma Jones's house felt very real, didn't it? Mm. With all its sort of like 1950s fixtures and fittings. But also Toby Jones's house, like I have seen some of the, yeah. that stuff in richer friends' parents' houses. Yeah, that kind of kitchen as well. Yeah, exactly. It's actually weirdly personalityless. And also they, they use a lot of aerial shots in the adaptation where like mm-hmm. you either you, you sort of start on the scene on the street and then it zooms right out mm-hmm. or almost as like a kind of breaker between plot points, you get like a kind of nighttime aerial scene of London where like you can see the shard and mm-hmm. the city and stuff. That was a really good visual device, I thought, because not only does it give you the sense of it not being a series of sets that it actually being a real place in a city you know but also because the city of london has such a kind of iconic skyline it mm. has those and we we associate that so closely with finance and greed mm. being able to see that on the horizon at all times i thought Absolutely. was was a really it was a really good way of making a possibly quite heavy-handed point quite subtly yeah and i think that you, you know those two senses of the word capital come across in that mm. shot because also, you get this real sense of how you zoom out and it's fairly suburban. Like, yeah. Clapham is quite suburban and it well, is quite a long way a away from A lot of South that. London is. But I feel like in those shots where you zoom out, you do feel quite far from that mm. skyline uh, in South London. And I think there's almost a point that they're making with those shots about how these are the 2.8 million properties and they're pretty far from the yeah. centre of London. And you get this real sense of being priced out of the capital and the capital edging further and further away from the centre as this like you know uncontrollable force spans out from the middle. It's, it's an interesting look at how those forces you think of as abstract permeate into daily lives. Yeah. We're joined by Elizabeth Minkle of the Fans Blaming podcast and also writing for the New Statesman and other places. And 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're going to talk about Rainbow Roll, author of Fangirl and Carry On and a number of other novels. Now, Elizabeth, you've written about Rainbow Roll several times, but I also know that you are a massive fan of hers. Yes. Tell us a little bit to start with how that works. We follow each other on Twitter and occasionally like correspond and stuff. So I feel very like like creepily obsessed with her. I mean, she's got really good. I want to. I don't want to call it, like brand, but like she's got a really approachable presence on mm. social media, and she's like a very warm person. She's so intriguing to me because, you know, she wrote Fangirl, which was such a seminal, like, important step in terms of the mainstreaming of fanfiction. And so I wind up writing about her a lot because the things she kind of does are sort of breaking barriers. I mean, we'll talk about what Carry On mm. is exactly, but, like, I wrote an article for you about that. Which, um, which we will link to. So just yeah. to sort of, if you haven't come across either of these novels, Fangirl is a novel about a girl who is writing fanfiction. And... She's writing fan fiction for a Harry Potter-esque series about a character called Simon Snow. She's been writing fan fiction with her twin sister for years, but at the point at which the action of the novel begins, she's writing a really big multi-part fic that's kind of like an imagined version of the last book in the mm. series. And so you get little extracts of this in Fangirl. You know, each chapter like opens with a little extract, which I don't know, Anna's smiling, so... I yeah, I really she... liked that. It's just such a nice way to read because you know that she's sort of working on this in the background all the time. And then so it's like getting... It's almost like a way of getting a little inner flash into her like consciousness at the time. Mm. And also I know, I'm sure everyone says this all the time, but when I was first reading those little bits... So many of them have direct parallels in Harry Potter. Yeah. So like someone calls someone else a coward or someone else refuses someone else's handshake. Like a lot of the times it's not even the magic element of the mm. fan fiction that right. she's writing that has those parallels. So it feels very familiar in a really nice way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and thus familiar. You feel familiar with her as well. Yeah. With Kath, with the character of Kath. So that's Fangirl. And it came out, what, 
2013. And it's probably yeah. worth noting, too, that the excerpts that are interspersed throughout, some of them are excerpts from Gemma T. Leslie. I put that in air quotes. Yeah. Who's the J.K. Rowling figure. Not just Harry Potter, obviously, but yeah, I think that's meant to be the... There's, like, quotes from interviews and stuff like that, isn't there's there? A, yeah. It actually opens yeah. with a kind of Wikipedia, Wikipedia page. page. Yeah. But then there's also... It intersperses that with her own fan fiction. So it's... Right. Yeah. So there's, like, lots of different elements to that. Right. And, it, yeah, and it's not just the one, the big one that she's working. It also has excerpts from the stuff that she had written with her twin sister yeah and the twin sister is like i'm done with that part of my life i'm an adult now going to college and so that's part of it so yeah yeah and then you also get bits that she reads out in real time like yeah. if someone asks her to talk about her fan fiction or something then you might get her like reading a bit to somebody we'll talk a bit more about this in a second but so carry on which is just published this autumn also by rainbow roll is ostensibly the fic that kath is writing in fangirl no, it's not is it not no. is this have i got this completely wrong then well i mean I guess you can interpret it however you want, but the way that Rainbow talks about it, and I, I want to say it was even, and not just in interviews, I mean, I, you know, I saw, I went to the New York launch and everything, she was talking about it, um, but I think she even, like, put, put it on her blog, saying I completely that, missed this, I thought it was yeah. Katzing. Yeah. No, 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 yeah. so she's saying there's basically three Simon Snow stories now, and that's what makes it so interesting, mm. if someone's interested in, like, intertextuality. I'm going to make this fancy because it's about fan fiction. Um, but <laughs> she, you know, so there's three Simon Snow stories. There's the canonical... Gemma T. Leslie. Yeah. There's the fan fiction that Kath writes. And then there's this book by Rainbow Rowell called Carry On. And oh, I see. It's so just I three different versions. She yeah. thought of it as a, th- a separate third one because I had it kind of in mind not having heard her speak about it. Or see oh, actually, I think it's in the back of the book, of the American oh, edition at okay. least. That's, no, where I have... the, I'm, that's where I think it was somewhere official. No, I didn't but come yeah. across it. So I sort of had in my head that it was like a blend of those other two things. That it was no, like yeah. the imagined Gemma T. Leslie version but, and also a lot of Kath. But no, it's no. rainbows. Yeah, she thing. said she she basically was so struck by these characters that she just wanted her own, you know, not her writing as a character. But also, so. presumably, although I'm sure that's what it officially is, that her choice to call it Carry On presumably is like a reference to the fact that Kath's fan fiction was called Carry On too. Yeah, and but there's also, I mean, there's there's multiple different references to the term Carry On right. in the book too. So yeah, I think that that it, that is part of it. But it's also, but it's also a good title for yeah. the for the book. Yeah, like, yeah, because it um, if you do see it as being as as carrying on from Fangirl at least in a way, or carrying on from Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. you know. So this is the other thing that we should talk about is that there are so many layers of kind of inter and metatextuality working with these novels and yeah. one of the really big ones is with J.K. Rowling's work right? because there are so many like knowing references in all three of the carry-ons yeah. to it but I feel like particularly in Rainbow's version like for an exa- for example for some for any of you who haven't read it already the Hogwarts school in Carry On is called Watford it's the Watford school of magics which is where Harry Potter world is mm. Harry Potter world right. is in Watford do you know that's L- not delivered I know I saw I saw people yeah. saying that afterwards that it, that's well, we're so talking funny. about like Leavesden when you say Harry Potter world yeah 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 the Harry Potter studio experience she said, the proper she, word for it she actually joked about that at one of the launches where she was saying like everyone was like oh that was so clever and she was like I had no idea yeah but that's what I mean it's like, <laughs> well, I love the idea of Watford <laughs> yeah. being a place but, that people want to go Americans we don't know and this is something that I wanted particularly wanted your perspective on Elizabeth to me I feel like she's done a really pretty good job of creating a Britishness in Carry On that that works like it really does like a lot of the kind of vernacular that like when Simon and Penelope are talking who I suppose you'd say are like the Harry and Hermione characters like when when they are when they're 
just chatting between the two of them like a lot of their kind of teasing and stuff is how I spoke to my friends when I was 17 like it was very good which I found really impressive because not many authors full stop can get so like deeply into a specific vernacular particularly of an age group as well as a place that's amazing and obviously she's a very talented writer to do so but there there are some places where that doesn't work so well and there are some places where just like the way taxis work in the book is not how taxis work in Britain and stuff like that. You I know? feel like the driving element in particular was very like, there's a lot of driving. Yeah. And I think that's, but there's a lot of driving in all of her books, but like a lot of them are set in like Nebraska. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, like, so it yeah. makes sense. It's like reading Fangirl. It, it, oh, yeah, there's loads of driving and it makes sense. It's almost like Paper Towns in John Green stuff. I, like there's yeah. loads of driving thought, yeah. and it makes sense. But like here especially teenagers although it's like really cool to learn to drive when you're 17 not that many teenagers like drive places at that age I no think. he is a sexy guy with a sexy car yeah does that change it yeah this is baz who's simon's roommate and eventually his love interest uh because it's so it's it, you know it's when coming from fan fiction it's a work of slash though in like you know the world of literature it's just a a gay romance um, yeah but obviously i I'm, i mean some of our Listeners don't read fan fiction, but I'm sure they're aware of the fact that, like, a lot of fan fiction does deal in, like, queering relationships and stuff. Right. And so it's funny when you were saying that you felt like she did a pretty good job with the language because I read so much Harry Potter fan fiction and it was good. I don't think you could tell if it was a British or an American writer Mm. because I think if you're really, really steeped in the kind of dialogue, I mean, yeah, I think that American authors heavily rely on some of the phrases that were in Harry Potter Mm. that perhaps are not as prevalent in everyday British. Especially because there's like no swearing or anything like that in Harry Potter when obviously I think most like 14, 15 year old teenagers, certainly the ones I knew, were like swearing constantly. (laughs) Also also something I really noticed is everyone speaks in full sentences in Harry Potter. Yeah. Which is just not how people speak. Yeah. And one of my favourite things as well, which I did notice in Fangirl, was Honestly, which is a very J.K. Rowling thing. Like, when the main characters would be teasing each other, they'd be like, honestly, you don't even... And, like, no no teenagers I know... I mean, maybe it's an American thing, but no teenagers I know would be like, honestly. It's such a mum Yeah, I was to say. Saying, my mum says that to me yeah, I think all the time. I, now, I'm, now, I'm, now I'm, like, doubting my own vernacular, but I, I do think that is the thing that Americans say. Mm. Yeah. Honestly. Oh, God, I don't even know. Yeah, when you say it in that voice, it sounds a lot more like... It sounds normal honestly yeah whereas i think in english people go oh, honestly <laughs> yeah it's it's a thing your mum says she like huffs and tuts a bit and it's like when you've left all your stuff in your room and she comes yeah. in she's like oh, honestly <laughs> yeah all right gotcha for me this book was very much in conversation with well harry potter yes but harry potter fan fiction yeah you know and so i think that some of it it just felt like I spent a lot of time in that world. I know that she did too. When she she came to it as an adult within the last five years, actually, wow. and um, mm. and I think it just really struck her. And so that's what led her to write Fangirl. But obviously, I think that that's part of the conversation that she's having is also with all these fanfiction writers, which is interesting to me. So, so I I follow Rainbow Roll on Tumblr, and I see her doing a lot of replying and talking a lot to kind of teenage girls who say things like, "I never spoke out about my fanfiction writing until I read Fangirl." Like she's very kind of supportive and engaged with the kind of current community and I think there's somewhere in the acknowledgements or the kind of end note of the book she kind of or even the dedication she says something like like this is to all of the people who are like Kath and like me and one of my favorite moments in Fangirl actually is where so the character of Kath she's quite introverted she's quite anxious Mm -hmm. she's quite nervous and she's particularly all three of those things when it comes to her writing and she meets someone another student at her college like in the library who's wearing a t-shirt love this moment that's got like a fan-made t-shirt about her fic because she's massive online and but no one 
in her real life apart from her sister knows about it so she has this whole conversation with this girl who's really into her writing and doesn't tell her that it's by her she just pretends that she also reads it and doesn't she even make a slightly derogatory comment about it to like yeah. throw her off the scent? <laughs> and that is yet another sort of layer of conversation in all of this that here you've got yeah. like the secret authorial intent hanging over this little conversation and she's pretending not even to know her own work. Yeah, and right. in that conversation the girl does even say like, oh my god, you're wearing that t-shirt. Like, it's so amazing to have a conversation with someone like in the real world about this. Because yeah. although yeah. everyone's having these conversations in the privacy of their own bedrooms, feels like... They're maybe not, and they are more and more and more, as you say, Rainbow Rails, like, helping to lead that charge. People aren't having it, maybe, outside of those rooms. But I also think one of the really interesting things about Kath as a character, sticking with Fangirl for a sec, is that you're never you're never made to feel like the answer for her is to just, like, be more extroverted. No. There's a lot mm -hmm. of talk about how she's an introvert, you know, she spends a lot of time writing, some of it fan fiction, some of it for school. Um, she doesn't like necessarily go to parties, she doesn't like getting drunk, she doesn't like doing a lot of the things that her twin sister likes doing, but the solution to that story would never be like, and then she put away childish things and got drunk and like had a great college experience. That's oh. just like not the answer. It was really nice to read a book about an introverted young woman that wasn't like, and then she discovered herself. And then she bought some high heels and like went yeah. to the party. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's a current trend in, I mean, outside of YA, I think you see a lot of that I mean, I spend a ton of time on Tumblr, and there's such a narrative going on about affirming introversion and, and your right to kind of, like, be who you want to be. I don't know. It seems like a supportive space, I have to imagine, especially for a young teen, you know? Yeah. yeah. I know I'm old. Then, Massively. So. <laughs> yeah. Fangirl was a massive bestseller. Yeah. Like, it, and as you say, it really broke ground in terms of... I don't want to say normalizing because that sounds like there's something to be normal about. I say mainstreaming. But mainstreaming. Yeah. Um, and in fact, she, I saw her when she came to London for the launch of her last book and she said she mentioned it to her agent in like, I don't know, 2011 or 12 it must have been. And he said, don't say that word. Don't fiction. Say. Yeah. And he was like, no, we don't want that. You know, because it's out of Fifty Shades, I'm assuming the publishing industry is confused about fan fiction. Yeah. And yeah, so it really, can you imagine like, him saying that and now I'm sure he's like, yeah, oh, now good, he'd be good like, choice. Yeah. You know, like, so. Having kind of done that mainstreaming with Fangirl, she's then created a text in Carry On that is all the more complicated. And you wrote this great piece for, you say it's been a while back, about what is and what isn't fan fiction. Yeah. And I just wondered if you could like give people a little praise of that. Well, the the funny thing about it is Carry On and Carry Out on October 6th because I was counting down the days to this. But by chance, that was the day also that Stephanie Meyer, the author of Twilight, decided to pull a Beyonce, as I heard many people say, and um, release Life and Death. So basically, Stephanie Meyer, you know, wrote the four Twilight books and this is the 10th anniversary of the publication of the first one. And so she released a uh, a book called Life and Death, where she swaps the genders of the protagonists. So now you have Edith and I can't remember their names. Like Bo or something? Bo, really weird. Bo. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, the man is a human and the woman is a vampire. So it was really funny timing because I was really excited about one book and then the publishing industry kind of exploded, at least mm. in the US, um, mm. over the news of this. And I saw a lot of people, including people I like and respect, saying, oh, what a great day for fan fiction the day that Carry On and Life and Death are released. Mm. And it's like, these aren't the same books at all. They have different yeah. intertextual relationships. Neither of them, in the way that I define fanfiction, are fanfiction. They're intertextual and metatextual novels. You can make this argument that all sorts of things are fanfiction. You could define it really broadly, and I even have in the past where you're like, yeah, uh, I don't know, there are all these classic works of literature that are fanfiction because they do the same things. But 
You know, in modern media fandom, fanfiction is something very intentional. Communities on the internet, or maybe you just write it for yourself. Maybe that's what I have always done. I write it myself, but read a lot in the community. The, the crux of that article was also that, like, you know, we say things like Sherlock and the Avengers uh, movies are fanfiction. And they're not, because, you know, like, yeah, we play with stories, we write the same stories, but those are these big, massive budget things helmed by men who are getting paid money, and you've got millions of women writing these stories for free. So I don't know. I mean, that was basically the article. That's my summary of it. Yeah, um, it just misses a major power dynamic, basically, right. doesn't it? And how people from the margins can come up and like do things with stories that people are never going to do from the centre. Right. And that's what's interesting about fan fiction, right? Right. And I mean, I also think that the, one of the most interesting things about these two examples is like, I mean, yes, they are both straight white women, both American, obviously. So it's not like from the extreme margins of, of anything mm. um, in terms of mass culture, but like making these arguments about the men who get paid to do the big budget fan fiction and in, in quotes. We need more women like Rainbow and Stephanie Meyer, you know, being the ones who are saying, well, here's my, you know, retold version. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're interesting examples because they are women, you know, and they are the ones taking this into control of their own hands. You know, I appreciate people who are saying it's fan fiction as a compliment. They mean like, oh, I, you know, there's the, the NPR review was one of the first I saw and she said it was the best Harry Potter fan fiction she'd ever read and she meant that as a compliment. And I was like, oh, first of all, you, maybe you should like wreck you some more stories. Yeah, it's good like, to say, was, yeah. Like, no, it's wonderful, but like, I don't know, I, I think that was just her way of saying like, I'm in the know. Mm. You know, and I, I think she, I think she meant well, but I just, I, it frustrated me a lot because this just, it, it's not that, you know, and, I think it's it's more complicated than that. So. Yeah, I've never, for me, had a clearer demonstration of what I think is fan fiction than when this summer I went to the Sherlock prom at the Royal Albert Hall, which was basically a con- an afternoon concert of music from all the different Sherlock Holmes TV and film adaptations that there have been. So, like, stuff from the Guy Ritchie film and from the, like, Granada TV series and like various like one-off specials there'd been of, of like, A Study in Scarlet, as well as the BBC Sherlock that's going at the moment and Mark Gattis was one of the like presenters he was like on in costume on the stage clearly having the time of his life and Martin Freeman and Una Stubbs were in the audience like I'd just come to watch and so there was this whole feeling that like this was kind of like the meeting of the the, the Sherlock fans that are like making the current Sherlock thing were there to like greet the previous Sherlock stuff yeah. but actually what it made me realize that it's not like that at all like for a hundred years Men have been retelling the Sherlock Holmes story. End of. Yeah. There, like, there is no fan fiction element to that. Right. And I sat through an hour and a half of like different music. And then the last thing that came on was like the theme from the most recent adaptation. And it just really laid out really nicely for me. Yeah. You know what I, mean? I mean, well, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is actually a really interesting example when it comes to this stuff because the people have been writing pastiches. Yeah. Which are kind of close to what fan fiction is for a hundred years. But like, you know, these are things that are often sanctioned by the Doyle estate yeah. and all this. And yeah, it's, it's still very establishment kind of. Yes, yeah, so you're right. It is, it is both really important that Rainbow, Rowell and Stephanie Myers are women, but also that in the case of Rainbow, that she's working in a, a sort of textual world also dominated by women, i.e. J.K. Rowling. Sure. Um, so there's just no men involved in this. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, her protagonists, protagonists are, yeah. are men. Yeah, but just like Hermione, uh, obviously Penelope is the star, right? Yeah, like, yeah, sure. Yeah, so... Oh, just wait till you read it. You're really going to like I it. I can't wait. <laughs> snow, 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 snow It won't be long before we'll all be there with snow 
I want to wash my hands, my face in hair with snow. So last week I recommended Anna the animated TV series Adventure Time to have a go at. Anna, what did you think? Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. It's really funny. It's really, really silly. I also found it really lovely to look at. Because mm, really I know it's like a brash, yeah. out there cartoon, but a lot of it was like actually surprisingly relaxing to look at. Just like when their arms sort of stretch, like the movements in it, is, it are really sweet. So it's basically about Finn, who is a human, human boy. And Jake, who is a magical dog. Two of them go on adventures all the time. Adventure time. Adventure time. Come on, grab your friends. We go to very distant lands. We take the dog and then the new land. The book will never end. It's adventure time. Well, it's, it's kind of... I think it's set in what's meant to be like a kind of post-apocalyptic earth or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a kind of strange landscape peopled with very strange people and lots of witches, lots of, lots yeah. of princesses, lots of sort of evil people and bizarre um, quirks of nature. Like the, instead of a river, there'll be like a junk river mm. and that kind of thing. And their main nemesis seems to be the Ice King. I love the Ice King. He's I my love favorite. Ice King. <laughs> so he's like a very insecure, lonely old man who's like capturing princesses because yeah. he like is, ha- is having lonely. princesses is his like main goal in life and yeah. He, yeah everything he does is to get princesses and he's like a whiny man isn't yes. he? <laughs> he's very so whiny <laughs> but yeah so they uh, often rescue princesses from his grasp i watched about i watched quite a few actually because they're so short they're, they're only really about 10 short, minutes yeah so i watched each, about yeah. seven or something it, it was really fun i wanted to see more of lumpy space princess because mm. i'd heard a lot about her and I, I i in all of the episodes i saw she appeared twice very briefly so I was sad about that. So I don't know if, if maybe I would, you know, become more addicted to it if I had some of them. I, w- I wanted more girls. I wanted more girl characters in there because it was yeah, all the, boys, really, that I was seeing. There definitely are more, like, there are all different princesses and they're very, there definitely are more. But I think, yeah, you're, it's a bit sporadic. So you can go, like, half a series without really seeing any of them. Because I, I did love the, I, it seems so silly to be like, I'd like more women characters in Adventure Time because obviously it's like, a joke (laughs) but they were just the funniest bits for me so there's one episode i watched there's like a tree witch Mm. who wants some hair (laughs) and she's like not she's got like a big bold spot on the top of her like trunk head and she wants some princess hair to cover it up and it's sort of about like her not feeling beautiful and her being evil but like just her way of speaking and stuff made me laugh so much and the same went for this witch who was like had a donut garden and like, mm. like a cupcake sort of plant, and she was very like, my pretty is about it, you know. She was, I just found her really funny, and she was like punishing the boys um, for their like indiscretion of eating one of her donuts on her donut bush. So like those sort of witchy characters, I really really liked. So it would have been nice to see a bit more of yeah, Lumpy Space Princess. But I also really loved the Ice King. I thought he was great. Yeah, he's my absolute favorite. I like him so much that. My flatmate buys me, whenever he buys me a present, it's always like something with the Ice King on it. <laughs> so I have like an Ice King tote bag, an Ice King notebook, and all of these things. I just find him so endearing, even though he's bad. I watched an episode where he dresses up like a horse. Yes. <laughs> and like waits outside their house in the middle of the night and they like can't sleep because they're so panicked about this horse. Um, and then he like reveals himself eventually or like they reveal him and he's like i just wanted to learn how to be happy you're always happy and i'm always so sad and then at the end he like falls asleep with them outside the house and he's like is this what happiness is just a good night's sleep is this all i needed and they're like cuddling and he's like his eyes are closing closing and he goes 
Well, I'm still not happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, yeah. And now I think he's so kind of angular and unhappy mm. that, yeah, I find him really endearing. I realise that in talking about Adventure Time, and this is a problem that I have a lot of the time when it's not just me and my flatmate talking about it, when there is a third person who hasn't seen it, that you just sound mad because you're going like, yeah, and then that time when they like took a bite of a pig. Um, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. But that is kind of the glory of it, that it it's just so totally zany and wacky. You know, it was originally intended as a children's thing for Cartoon Network, and it's had this whole second life as a kind of adult yeah. entertainment thing. They're apparently even working on a like a full-length Adventure Time movie. I would definitely be up for that. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I don't know. The thing is that I, I just don't know how to incorporate 10-minute-long shows into my life. I, I watch them while I eat breakfast. Do you? Yes. That sounds good, because, like, I... It's either that I, or Postman Pat. I'm not going to, like, sit down in the evening with a glass of wine and, like, watch six episodes of Adventure Time. No, no, I I watch them um, while I'm having my porridge in the morning. A morning Adventure Time slot actually sounds very sensible, but I'm maybe too much of a late riser for that. You're more organised than I am. Mm, Don't know about that, but yeah. (laughs) Um, Maybe I'm just late for work more. But yeah, that's... But you're right, that's... I rotate between Adventure Time and Postman Pat because Postman Pat is 15 minutes and Adventure Time is... I love Postman Pat. Postman Pat, though, is not like Adventure Time. No, it's not like it at all, but I have a very... Postman Pat is like just for literal children. Yeah, but maybe we should talk about this another episode because I have some strong views about what's happened to Postman Pat since I was a child. You know, he doesn't work for the Royal Mail anymore. Has he been privatised? He's been privatised. Oh my God. Now he has a helicopter and he works for like, I don't know, the the Green Deal equivalent of FedEx. Um, And this makes me really unhappy. But luckily, because it's still on the BBC, they still replay all the old ones constantly. And you can always tell on iPlayer which is the... The ones with the van, and I, so I only watch van. Right. I, I, I boycott privatised. What about Postman what about? Because I remember what, I watched Plasticine era Postman Pat. Oh yeah, so those are the ones I like. The but, ones. But was there not a period where he was still Royal Mail but cartoon? Um, no, I don't think so. No. Mm, okay, I'm also then firmly in the van era Postman Pat camp. But yeah, anyway, I love the it... idea of you just like yeah, just having my breakfast with some Andy Pandy. No, I don't, <laughs> no, God no. Only serious grown-up topics, as discussed on Adventure Time and Postman Pat, for me while I eat my breakfast. Okay. Adventure Time has had this whole sort of second life with all of the merch and the spin-offs and all of this kind of thing. Um, that and there's a lot actually I will link to there are a couple of really good Adventure Time long reads that people have done. Okay, cool. Sort yeah, of about well, for that. A people uh, sort of about like the the philosophy of the world and like what it says about us that we so like something so silly. Mm. Yeah, and I think that is the joy of it. It's just that it's like completely ridiculous. After the first episode, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> wait, what? What just happened? And then after like seven, I was quite like, yeah, I get it. I'm keen. I've yet to meet anyone who has watched four Adventure Time episodes and not wanted to watch more. Yeah. Because it's so low maintenance as a thing. But you do sort of want to know what happens and you, you want the feeling it gives you back. Yeah, um, but it's also just so, like, nice to look... Like, I like it, for example, like, when they're, like... <gasps> when they, like, gasp and, you know, like, that sort of vaguely anime-influenced sparkly eye. Yeah. Like, I like to look at their big sparkly eyes in those moments. And also there's, there was a bit where they were, like, lying on this, like... Not grass, because it was kind of pink, but, like, swaying in the wind, like... Mm, it's Relaxing-looking really relaxing yeah. ground. And I was like, oh, I like watching this a lot. It's make, making me feel good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, it gives me a not dissimilar feeling to detectorists in the yeah. sense that it makes yeah. me feel calm and safe. It's so funny because last week we were like, could anything be more different? And yet the the overall effect on your like psychological well-being is fairly similar. Yeah, it is. And 
actually, just to throw back to what we talked about earlier, I really liked the adaptation of Capital, but it did stress me out. Yeah, definitely. It definitely made me feel uncomfortable. And, you know, obviously that's a legitimate part of responding to any kind of culture is Mm. you don't want it to just make you feel cosseted. You you want it to give you other feelings too. But Adventure Time and Detectorist both exist in a very, very sort of calm place for me. Yeah, good for Sunday night anxiety. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) So for after Christmas, because we've got two Christmas specials coming up in which we won't really be recommending each other stuff. But there's lots of other good things. There's lots of other good things. Hold on to your hats. For when we get back, I thought I'd recommend you um, a British thing, a British TV thing, which you tell me you haven't seen before, which I'm surprised by, but it's First Dates, which is uh, the dating programme, sort of, that everyone I know watches. Yeah, I'm very aware of people talking about it on, and loving it on Twitter a lot, but um, this is going to sound really obnoxious, but I've just been so busy. Yeah, so <laughs> I just busy. I haven't watched it at all. Way too busy. I mean... I think uh, one of the best things about this is it's like quite addictive Mm, Um, and you get a lot of sort of like, oh my God, I've been on a date with that guy. Like not that exact guy, but like that guy, you know what I mean? But yeah, so you get a real range of people. I don't know how, I I think they get them to do a form or something because they are very clearly like actively matched. Okay, I was going to say, is this like the blind date of the 21st century? Because I was a big fan of blind date. Not really, because Blind Date, I feel, is a lot more about, like, the state, the setting on the stage and the yeah. silly jokes and no, 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 whereas this is, like, reality TV. You know, mm-hmm. they've, like, they basically the restaurant is in Paternoster Square, which is very near where we work, put cameras all through the restaurant and everyone there is on a first date and they just, like, let them go and film it all. But they very deliberately either match people up who are very similar, who are likely to get on, or if one of them says, oh, yeah, it's really important to me that we're from a similar background, then they'll be in a, yeah. from a similar background. But so, it, that, so they're not actively trying to set it up so that they fail it, yeah. no okay, but then but obviously a lot of the time they do yeah well that's just life isn't it yeah so it's really interesting it's really funny and also i think one of the things that's great about it is the staff in the restaurant and you kind of if you watch a lot of them you really get to know sort of the maitre d whose name is fred and <laughs> um is sort of like a love a french like love guru and uh and all the other waiters and waitresses um so now when i walk past i'm always like Hello. <laughs> Do I see any? Um, so yeah, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. We have a special request of our listeners. We are turning our thoughts to Christmas and we want to do a special episode all about Christmas television, how you watch it, what you enjoy and so on. So we would like to hear from you. All our contact details can be found on newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY. Please get in touch. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.